Now you may be wondering, why in the world at Christmas, why are we looking at Revelation 21? Why did Nathan read from Acts chapter 1? Well, let me reassure you, it is not by accident. It's by design. Remember during the month of December, we've been taking a look at how Christmas and the anticipation while we wait for its day really shows us where we are as believers. As Christians, we are a people of waiting. We are no longer waiting for the first appearance of Jesus. We are now a people waiting for His second coming. And Christmas is a time of year that reminds us of that. That we are waiting for His arrival. Just as those prior to His birth were awaiting the Messiah, we too now, even after His birth, are waiting for the Messiah to come. and To set all things right. So this month we have focused upon looking at what lies ahead. Looking at what it means to be a people of waiting. And how Christmas locates us where we are right now in God's calendar. So I draw your attention to Revelation 21. And as I said, although verses 1 through 4 are listed as the text, I'm going to read through verse 8. The Apostle John writes these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for hearing our prayer this morning. Thank you for the hope that we have of the, because of the gospel. Lord, we ask this morning that you would fix our gaze upon you. The days are busy. 
Father, we know that there's many activities and many preparations that may still need to be made. But Lord, this morning, at this time, I ask you, Father, to focus our hearts and our minds upon you. Jesus said that if the disciples were to wait, they would, be, they would be clothed in power. Father, we believe that power came in the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be made manifest this morning. Work within us and through us, Father, so that you will be honored in all things. We ask this through the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And the church said, Amen. If you've ever flown by airplane, of course, there would really be no other way you would fly. If you've ever experienced the layover, you have probably experienced Einstein's theory of relativity in practice. Because I guarantee you, the longer your layover is, the slower it will seem to go. Because airports really weren't made for you to abide in for a long time. That's why I'm amazed at the story of Moran Narasi. You see, Moran fled the nation of Iran in 1977. He had been critical of the Shah. And because his life was threatened, he, he got out of the country. And he was trying to get to Belgium. But he had a layover in Paris. Things went horribly wrong during that layover. His passport and papers were either lost or stolen. Because they were gone, they were missing. He wasn't allowed to board the plane to get to Belgium. Because his papers were missing and he wouldn't declare Iran, his home country, he had nowhere to go. There was no place for the authorities to send him back to. There was no place for him to go to. There was no home. So, Moran stayed at the first ter terminal of the Charles de Gaulle airport. And he stayed there for the next 18 years. It became his home. He had a little section where he stayed. Airport workers would get him food, give him a newspaper. And for the next 18 years, this man lived in the waiting area of an airport. It's an irony, isn't it? A place that was never meant to be a home becomes a home. A place that was meant to be a place of waiting becomes a place where you stay. I see a great danger for that in us as the church. You see, this world is not our home. It's a place of waiting. A place where we are awaiting the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. But our danger is much like Moran. We forget that we have a destination. We forget that we've been born again so that before we know it, this world has become our home where we are comfortable with things as they are. And as believers, we no longer show our allegiance to Jesus Christ by waiting for His return, but rather we become comfortable with things as they are. So the challenge for us is this. Not to become at ease in this world. To live as a people that are waiting expectantly for the return of Jesus Christ. And that is why it is crucial for us to remember that for which we wait. To have a picture in our minds of what lies ahead so that we'll realize that the things of this world cannot satisfy our eternal longing. We must remember what awaits us 
so that we do not become comfortable with the things of this world and we can truly say there are better days ahead, there are better things that await, there are things that are beyond our imagination, so be faithful. We remember them even though we haven't experienced them because they are described in the Scripture. This passage I read this morning really serves as the thesis statement for Revelation chapters 21 through 22. They are, as it, as it is, the end of the beginning, or I should say the beginning of the end. This is where we start to find out the happily ever after. This is where we see the end of the story and we are reminded that we are to continue living and walking in the story as God is writing it. Because these verses tell us of the day that is coming. This church, I remind you, there is coming a day when God will recreate all of creation. That's the point of verse 1. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's a way of saying all of creation. It encompasses all things. As if a person were going into a fight and they say, I'm ready to fight tooth and nail. They're, they're saying, I'm going to give everything that I have. When this is written and it says a new heaven and a new earth, it's saying all of the cosmos is going to be recreated because the first earth, the first cosmos, has passed away. Which begs the question, why is creation destroyed? We're used to thinking in terms of us as believers receiving a new body when Jesus returns. But why creation? And that's why we need to remember that according to Romans 8, when humanity fell from grace due to rebelling against God in the garden, creation was also subjected to futility. This world is not perfect, as if I need to remind us of that. But it's not just perfect because of the actions of humanity. It's imperfect because of sin. You could really say that as beautiful as the sunsets are, you and I have never seen a beautiful sunset because as that sun sets over the mountains, it is still marred by sin. We've never seen a truly beautiful snowfall. As you maybe looked out last week and you were all cozy in your house with hot chocolate nestled by the fire with your dog at your feet and looked out and thought, how beautiful. That is beauty that is still marred. By sin. Creation needs to be redeemed. And that's what this is talking about. A beautiful picture of this is something that occurred in the city of Boston. For many years, the Boston Charles Street Jail homed the majority of the notorious criminals in Boston. At the time it was built, it was considered to be a model of what prison architecture ought to be like. However, the facility, this prison, had fallen into disrepair by the 1960s when it became overcrowded and filthy. And soon, in fact, in 1973, it was condemned. But even though it was condemned, the last prisoners were not removed until 1990. At that point, the question was, what's going to become of this jail? What will happen to it? For years, it said empty until someone had a vision. 
And someone with this vision contracted a group of investors and over $150 million was spent to buy the Charles Street Jail and then to renovate it. So now what was once a jail is one of the most luxurious hotels in Boston, the Liberty Hotel. What was once a prison now has rooms that can be rented from anywhere from $319 to $5,500 per night. What was once a prison has now become the lap of luxury. What was once meant to incarcerate is now bringing joy. And that is a picture of what will happen with the new heaven and the new earth. This world that is tainted by sin will be recreated, remade, redone so that once what was brought travails and pains now brings joy and peace. Why? Because of God's creative work. God takes what is broken and He will repair it. He takes what is ugly and He makes it beautiful. He will take what has been disfigured and he alone will mend it. This next phrase is what's curious. Notice at the end of verse 1 it says the sea was no more. Now I don't know about you but I happen to like the ocean. Always enjoyed going to the ocean, playing in the waves, sitting on the beach, reading a book. So it's a little bit disquieting to me to think does that mean in heaven there are no more oceans? Well, I want to assure you, I do believe that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be oceans. If there's not, that means that Satan could look at God and say, See, you redeemed all the land and the stars, but I got the ocean. Not at all. There's not one part of God's creation that will remain unredeemed. But what does this mean? In the scripture, see. The sea is a picture of chaos and turmoil. It comes to represent chaos. That which you and I have no control over. Have you ever been in the ocean and maybe you walked out a little bit so it's up to like your, your waist and you turn around to say hello to all the yahoos still on the beach? And right when you do, do that, what happens? Some rogue tsunami hits you right in the back of the head. Face plants you right into the sand so you feel like you're picking jellyfish out of your teeth. You ever been hit by a wave and you can't gain your footing? Do you understand why the sea is a picture of chaos? You can't control it. It's out of your power. You can't do anything. And isn't that a picture for what life is? How many things have happened in our lives we had no control over, didn't expect to happen, but it has happened and we're left reeling. Well, the good news is that in the new heaven and the new waves, chaos will be no more. The turmoil brought by sin is gone. All evil and in its nefarious manifestations will be no more. That's what it means when the sea was no more. Chaos is gone and peace and tranquility rain but then it gets even better notice he says in verse 2 I saw the holy city New Jerusalem we're now faced with a similar question why New Jerusalem consider for a moment how Jerusalem is portrayed in Revelation in chapter 11 Jerusalem is the place where the church is opposed and persecuted in chapters 11, 16 and 17 Jerusalem joins in with Babylon in rebelling against God. It joins Babylon in its idolatry. So in fact, Jerusalem that was once the city of God now has turned its back on God and represents rebellion against God. 
That's why he says this new Jerusalem comes down because the rebellion that has risen against God is now quelled in all of its forms. But notice how this new Jerusalem is described. This holy city coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. But then in verse 3, this voice from the throne, the very voice of God says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, the new Jerusalem represents that God is with us. There's no more a sense of we're down here and God is up there. Now the two are united and God resides with and lives with the redeemed. Now a key word in this is in verse 3. Dwelling place. Tabernacle. You and I already have a living example of what this day will be like. In John 1.14 it says that Jesus... As God incarnate, tabernacled among His people. What does the New Jerusalem do? It is the tabernacle of God. Jesus is the preview of what this day will be like. Notice another description of this. He will dwell with them. In Matthew chapter 1, what does the angel say to name Jesus? He will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And Matthew's quoting the prophet Isaiah from chapter 7 where God gave Isaiah a sign and it said, Before the time the child is weaned, your enemies, Isaiah, will be defeated. And Matthew takes that prophecy and he says Jesus is that child so that as Jesus comes, the enemies will be defeated. So what enemies are, are, are being referred to here? Now it's easy to say, well, the cross and the resurrection, that's the victory of Jesus. And indeed they are. But the Gospels give us an even clearer picture of what this day is like when God dwells with His people and chaos is gone. Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5 give an incredible picture of what this will be like when God dwells with His people. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus is in the front of the boat with His disciples. Chaos erupts. There's a storm at sea and the, the winds and the waves are battering the boat and they, they wake up Jesus because they are scared. And Jesus says, you have little faith. And I have a feeling that if Jesus were from the south, He would have said, hey, watch this. And he steps up and he speaks a word. And the storm stops. The sea is at peace. Chaos. God. When they land, they get on the beach, they are met by a man. This man, we are told in Scripture, is possessed by demons. Possessed so much that chains can't hold him. He is wild, running around naked, unclothed. The people are terrified of him. But Jesus has a conversation with this man and exercises authority over the demonic and takes those entities that would destroy humanity and Jesus casts them out. Chaos gone. The demonic defeated. Then Jesus gets word. Jairus is a leader of the temple and his daughter is sick. Would you come and heal her? As Jesus is making his way there, the crowds press in against him. And there's a woman, an old lady. Her health care fund has been depleted. She has been sick for over 12 years with this hemorrhage. 
And she reaches out to Jesus thinking, if I can just touch him, just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And she does that. And at that moment, sickness is gone. Are you keeping score now? See, chaos at peace. The demonic defeated. Sickness gone. But this time, word comes, Jesus, you're too late. Jairus' daughter's dead. Jesus says, let's go to the house anyway. When they get there, they say, if only you'd been here, she wouldn't have died. What, what happened? And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. And he bends down next to her. And in Aramaic, says the word, Talitha kume, little girl, get up. And the dead sit upright and begin serving. Now, you follow with me. You see what's happened when Emmanuel is there, when God is with his people? Chaos stops. Demon, the demonic is defeated. Sickness is no more. And death is defeated. In Jesus, we have a precursor to what this day will be like as Jesus exercises his authority and says my people do not be afraid I am with you now and one day I will be with you forever therefore live for that day that is Emmanuel God with us so we get a picture of this and on that day he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes death will be no more mourning, pain, all the former things have passed away Church, let's not forget that. The things of this world can weigh us down. We've all had our share of hospital beds. We've all had our share of illnesses. We've had our share of death. And lest we fall into discouragement, let us remember what this day is like. This past week in the community Bible reading, I remember reading in Zechariah 8 when the new Jerusalem I believe was being described and one of the descriptions was this children will play in the streets children will play in the streets joy now what that means for us is this we need to take courage to know God is guiding us toward his conclusion notice in verse 5 he who was seated on the throne says, I'm making all things new. What that means is, he is working now, bringing about this new creation. One day it will be completed in Christ. But in the church, the world sees what this is like. They see the power of God, the peace of God, the presence of God. How we can have joy even in the midst of grief. How we have comfort in the midst of crisis. And God says, I am making all things new. So we don't become discouraged. Rather, we have hope because we know God's at work. You cannot judge the work of an artist while it is still in process. A sculptor sits down with a piece of marble to create a bust. And you look at it and it still looks square and unshapen. You don't say, that's horrible. You'll say, I'm not finished yet. Let us not judge God by what we see happening now. But to recognize God is at work creating things according to his purpose. And we don't become discouraged because of what Jesus himself said when he said, in this world you will have trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome this world. So not only are we to live as people of hope because there's a better day coming, we are to live faithfully. Stand firm in the faith. The book of Revelation as a whole was written for two purposes. 
to encourage the church not to give up in the midst of persecution and to remind the church not to abandon its faith because of the pleasures of this world. The thought of the return of Jesus should push you and me to live faithfully. That's what he says in verse 6 and 7. He'll supply what we need. He'll give water without payment. The one who conquers has this heritage. There will be a relationship with God. Stand firm. Hampton Sides wrote a novel or a book. I'm sorry, it's a work of nonfiction entitled Ghost Soldiers. It's about the rescue of over 200 soldiers in early 1945 that had been captured in the Philippines. It's considered one of the greatest raids that ever took place because every soldier was rescued in a surprise attack on the prison camp. In the interviews that took place afterward, soldiers began reflecting on the prisoners who died in prison. They noticed a common theme. The prisoners who believed that rescue would come lived disciplined lives in preparation for that. They believed rescue would come, so they wanted to be ready. So they lived doing push-ups, exercising, maintaining a regimen of discipline. But when they lost hope of rescue, discipline was one of the first things that left. And after discipline left, they gave up completely and soon died. The hope of Jesus' return is not just biblical trivia. It is meant to spur me and you to live faithful lives seeking Him. Not compromising with the world around us, but being focused upon Christ. Living for Him. Seeking Him. Being faithful. Saying, Lord, if knowing you is the reward, then that is greater than anything that we will have on this earth. Because a reward that is not greater than what you have is no reward at all. So keep in mind what happens on that day. I recently read just a little anecdote from a man by the name of David Peterson. He's the former pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Spokane, Washington. He told about a time he was at home working in his office area on his sermon when his little girl came in and said, Daddy, Daddy, can we go out and play? And he said, Honey, I really wish I could, but I need to keep working on the sermon. Give me about one hour and then we'll go out and play. She said, okay, Daddy, but when you're finished, I'm going to give you a great big hug. And with that, she walked toward the door. But when she got to the door, she turned around and she came back and gave her dad a bone-cracking, chiropractic, soul-squeezing hug. He said, honey, I thought you were going to give me a hug after I finished. And she said, Daddy... I just wanted you to know what you have to look forward to. Church, do you know what you have to look forward to? Do you know what awaits? It's glorious. Live in hope and live faithfully. Would you bow your heads with me, please?